diabetes. So named by the second century Cappadocian physician means siphon, referring to the polyuria, but it's a modern siphon through which our patient's quality of life will drain if we don't focus on it in our practices. You're listening to Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host, and with us today is Dr. John Buse, the president of Medicine and Science for the American Diabetes Association, and we are highly honored to have him here today. Welcome, John. Thank you very much. All right, John, I've been looking over your stuff. You're a really busy man. You have an academic practice in Chapel Hill, you work with the NIH, and you're president of Medicine and Science at the ADA. What exactly do you do for the, for the American Diabetes Association? The American Diabetes Association has a professional full-time staff of about 600 distributed throughout the country, and then they are volunteers that work to basically set the direction and help out in the process of getting the word out about diabetes. And the president for medicine and science really focuses on medical issues and issues of science in diabetes, trying to find better treatments, cures, that sort of thing. So do you have a staff that you work with? or Well, the staff at the ADA, the home office is in Alexandria, Virginia. The chief scientific and medical officer, his name is Richard Kahn. He's been there for probably 20 to 25 years, and there are a dozen or so people in his office that I work with most of all. Tell us about your history with diabetes. How did you become involved in it? Uh, was there a family connection here? Yeah, in a way. In a way, it's a it's a funny story. My mother came to the United States in 1956, having gotten an award for the best research project in her medical school in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And she was met at the airport in the United States. The prize was to do a fellowship in the United States by my father, who was also doing a fellowship in the same lab. So both of my parents were endocrinologists. I tried to become an oncologist because I didn't want them to figure out what an idiot I was and basically failed in that quest. My my research mentor was leaving the institution, so I had to find a new mentor, and it happened to be working on diabetes research, and you know, the rest is history. Wow, talk about karma. You know, the Oedipal story, I mean, not quite as sordid as the original one. You know, I knew my fate. I tried to avoid it, but... You have an academic practice in Ch- Chapel Hill, correct? Yes. I see patients about three half days a week in Chapel Hill, and then over the years I've done these outreach clinics around the state of North Carolina. Right now I go to the Salem Center in Winston-Salem as well. All right. Let's talk about diabetes and, and our practices. It's, you know, it's something that we all learn about in medical school. I'm a dermatologist. I've been out for 30 years, and, uh, you know, of course I think of it as a total body disease that we should be aware of. Are all physicians as aware as we should be of diabetes every day? I think it's a two-edged sword. I bet that diabetes, you know, among the diseases we could ask any doctor about, they probably could, you know, you took the average doctor around the country, they could probably tell us more about diabetes than almost any other disease because they see it every day in their practice, whether they're a dermatologist or a periodontist. I mean, it, it just doesn't matter. But that has its good side and its bad side. I mean, the good side is we have this familiarity. We're seeing it all the time. The bad side is that because we have this familiarity, I think sometimes we kind of take it for granted. I remember as a medical student thinking, you know, I didn't understand why my father was, you know, had spent his entire life agonizing about how to best treat patients with diabetes because nobody ever yelled at me as a medical student because I did a bad job of of taking care of people's diabetes when they came in for breast cancer or heart attack or whatever other problem they had. So I, 
I think in a way it's the Rodney Dangerfield of, uh, of human diseases. Gets no respect, but it's a star-billing disease, isn't it? It is. It's a rapidly expanding epidemic that threatens the very fabric of our medical society. I mean, it just it has the risk of overwhelming us completely. And that's because we're getting fatter and not exercising? Or... Well, you know, that's the easy answer. That's even maybe the right answer, that it's really driven exclusively by gluttony and slothfulness. There are more complicated possibilities. You know, sleep clearly is a part of this. People who don't get enough sleep are at higher risk for having insulin resistance and diabetes. Stress, you know, and we're more and more stressed in our daily lives is clearly part of this. There are questions whether genomic imprinting, namely that things that our mothers were exposed to when we were in utero, has changed the nature of metabolism. I mean, there's all kinds of theories out there. What's absolutely clear is there is an epidemic, both of overweight and diabetes, and they're linked. But exactly why, we don't know. So if I get up really early to work out to keep my weight down, but I'm stressed by losing sleep, am I kind of like doing one thing bad for another thing good? To be honest, I'd have to admit that I wouldn't know whether to give you an A grade on that. I mean, you certainly would get an A for effort, but I'm I'm not sure it's effective to go from being sleep-deprived to being more sleep-deprived so that you can be physically more active. Thanks. If you just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. John Buse, the president of Medicine and Science for the American Diabetes Association. So, John, let's let's just talk about a couple specialties. Let's start with mine, for instance, with dermatology. I truthfully, as I go through the day treating the mundane eczema and acne, I don't put a lot of focus on diabetes. What should I be thinking of, for instance, diabetes in the skin? Well, I think the two, you know, the two areas where we in the diabetes community are really looking for help are first helping to identify people with diabetes who don't know it. You know, the skin is a site of relatively frequent infections. Anybody that has a more frequent infections, a chronic infection, a wound that doesn't heal, should be thinking about diabetes, screening for diabetes. The fasting plasma glucose test is the probably the easiest, best test, but a random glucose is pretty good as well. And then the other area we need help in is identifying patients that are poorly controlled that could benefit from better control. And I imagine it's the same kind of things. There are some very specific skin conditions in diabetes, necrobiosis, lipoidica, diabeticorum, uh, more common in type 1 diabetes, this waxy, the epidermis has died and you just see down into the dermis, usually in the anterior shins. And then the other thing would be acanthosis nigricans, the sort of heaped up dark rim around the back of the neck most often, but also in the armpits and that kind of thing as a as an indicator of insulin resistance. Well, you said something interesting because I do see both of those in my practice once in a while. And up until now, I've kind of been like referring and pushing off the patient onto their general doctor. But there's no reason why I as a specialist can't order a test for my patient, right? A fasting plasma glucose. Yeah, fasting plasma glucose. Normal is less than 100. 100 to 125 would be pre-diabetes where lifestyle intervention is clearly indicated, and then 126 or higher would be diabetes. If you get a random glucose, it turns out that a random glucose over 140 is pretty abnormal, you know, unless someone is, is, is really sick. 
or the hemoglobin A1C test, which is an index of the average blood sugar over a month, oh, over three months, you don't have to be fasting there. Normal is usually less than six. Any abnormal results would clearly indicate. So which one should I order? You know, the cheapest, best test is probably the fasting plasma glucose. There's some modifications that are being done to the hemoglobin A1C assay. And in a couple of years, it's possible that we might we might change our minds towards the hemoglobin A1C because you don't have to have the patient be fasting. Okay. Let's pick another specialty. Just we'll go we'll go around the board. How about how about like the oral surgeons and people who look inside the mouth? What are we looking for there? Yeah, so the oral surgeons I think are very tuned into this. I think a lot of internists and family practice doctors, primary care doctors are not. And that is that people with diabetes are at very high risk of gingivitis gum disease, and early tooth loss. So one of the most common complications of uh, poorly controlled diabetes is early tooth loss. People with type 1 diabetes, you know, being edentulous at age 25 or 30. So if a dentist, an oral surgeon, hygienist sees a patient with gingivitis, should ask about diabetes history and risk factors, make sure that people are, are not only taking care of their teeth, but if they have diabetes, that they're well controlled. And if they don't know that they have diabetes, uh, making sure that they're screened for diabetes. Okay. What about surgeons? Well, surgeons, you know, there are two things that I would want surgeons to be aware of. One is the lifetime risk of someone developing diabetes is around 30% or so. So there's a lot of people out there that have diabetes, and there's a lot of people out there who have diabetes and don't know it. The key issues are there are some diabetes-related complications that can suggest a surgical problem when one doesn't exist. One of them is this mononeuridities, where a single nerve generally will become painful, sometimes will become numb, but they're well-described cases, and I've seen a couple in my career where people develop a pain across their flank that for all the world can imitate a gallbladder attack. So, you know, I have seen patients who were being evaluated for cholecystectomy where it turned out that they had this painful mononeuropathy. Also, sometimes patients will come in with diabetic ketoacidosis or very high blood sugars in the setting of type 2 diabetes and look extremely ill and have a quiet abdomen, a white count, sometimes tenderness, rarely rebound. And often they'll have elevated liver function tests or pancreatic enzymes. So there are people who end up with exploratory operations concerned about abdominal catastrophes in the setting of uncontrolled diabetes, where if you just get their blood sugar down, the syndrome will generally resolve. It's usually an ilia. Sometimes it's more of a even upper gastrointestinal problem than a lower gastrointestinal problem. Uh-huh. And this is besides the surgeon looking for any you know, slow healing and wounds like that. Right. All right. If you just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. John Buse, the president of medicine and science for the American Diabetes Association. Are pediatricians doing enough to screen? Well, I think the pediatricians are getting very tuned in. I mean, the pediatricians are probably having the most rapid evolution in the way they think about diabetes. 20 years ago, you know, if you had asked a pediatrician to describe diabetes, it would have been exclusively, you know, thin Caucasian child comes in with bedwetting, you know, has a blood sugar of 600, 
type 1 diabetes, insulin injections. You know, nowadays, half the children, half the diabetes that they see is really overweight type 2 diabetes presenting in childhood. That means that not only do they have to learn a new, you know, sort of a new image of what the patient with diabetes looks like, but also a completely different emphasis in the kind of lifestyle intervention, new drugs. I think it's been fairly disorienting for the pediatricians, but they're definitely tuned into it. The recommendations now are to screen children for diabetes if they're overweight and they have risk factors for the development of diabetes. John, thanks. Thank you for being our guest today and bringing us a bit closer to the ADA and the work you're doing there. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMDXM is here for you, the health professionals who care for your patients. Tell us what you want and what you need. Send your email to xm at reachmd.com. We value your questions, and we thank you for listening. 